Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Bikes for Death podcast. As always, my name is Patrick, and I'm your host. And on today's episode, I'm talking to Kurt Refsnyder, who is an absolute legend in the sport and probably has more experience in the world of cycling as an athlete specifically than a lot of people in the bikepacking space and endurance bikepacking space specifically. If you don't know Kurt, he has his hand in a lot of different pots in the cycling industry, and I'm going to let him introduce himself on today's episode. Uh, but I will tell you some of the things that you can look forward to hearing about. One of my favorite stories was about the first century he ever did at 13 years old. Another big topic for today is the Continental Divide Trail, which is a 3,300-mile trail along the Continental Divide that starts in Canada and ends in Mexico or at the American-Mexico border. It parallels the Tour Divide route, and the biggest distinction here is that the CDT is primarily single track and that it's pretty much a hiking trail. In the past eight years, only about four or a handful of people have even attempted or ridden the entire thing. So that is going to be a big topic on today's episode. We're also going to be talking about bikepacking routes, Kurt's role there, and some of the functions of that organization, as well as some of Kurt's training, because yes, among other things, he's also a coach. Uh, so those are just some of the highlights that you have to look forward to on today's episode. But before we get to it, let's take a moment to thank the latest batch of patrons, starting with... The one and only Andrew Dordle. Uh, thank you so much, Andrew. You are our only new patron this week, and we appreciate you very much, and we appreciate everybody who supports this show. If you would like to help support this independent podcast, you can find out more over at patreon.com forward slash bikes or death. Now, today's episode is also brought to us by my good friends over at Old Man Mountain. Today, Eric is joining me from Old Man Mountain. How are you doing today, Eric? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Patrick. Absolutely. It's great to have you on. Love talking about bikepacking and uh, getting people outdoors. And uh, that's what y'all specialize in. So I know y'all make primarily two racks right now, the Divide and the Elkhorn. And we're going to dig into both of those on these mini pods. But today, I thought we'd focus on the Elkhorn. So... Give us an idea of like what the Elkhorn is and who it might be best suited for. Yeah, so the Elkhorn uh, is a little bit of a different rack in that the uprights on it aren't made for panniers. They're made for three-pack mounts. So you can put anything cages, uh, many thing cages, king cage, basically anything you can bolt on. Small bolt-on panniers are great. Um, something that's going to be more modular in that setup and strap items on rather than just having a pannier where you're dumping all the stuff in the bag. Um, so really, really great for carrying water um, and those hard items that don't do well in a bag, but it still has the full deck of, uh, same as the divide, it's the same um, sheet metal deck there. So it's solid, functions as a fender a little bit, and then has plenty of room to strap stuff there. Works front or rear, comes in short or tall. So pretty much no matter the tire size, we've got you up to um, fat bikes on the front. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so you said those can run uh, front and rear. And do those, can you fit that to suspension and non-suspension bikes as well? Yeah, totally. Uh, so we have fit kits available um, to fit basically any bike out there, um, either QR through axle, um, we have the fit kit that has little studs that stick out the end. 
uh, to give you a mounting place that's super secure and solid. And then we have what we call pucks that attach with some really, really strong zip ties. They're actually stronger than eyelet mounting um, to give you a point on the stays or on the fork to attach the extenders. And those extenders come with the rack in front and rear lengths. And you can also chop the longer ones down just to really perfectly fit your bike if you need to. Um, so full suspension, hard tail, gravel bike, tri bike, whatever you want, we can put <laughs> it on there. Dude, that's awesome. I mean, that's what makes racks so great is you can turn any bike into a bike packing bike, um, which is absolutely phenomenal. Totally. So yeah. dude, we appreciate y'all so much. We love the products that, uh, y'all make and help people get outside. If people want to check them out. Where can they go, uh, find you guys online? Yeah, obviously we're on, uh, YouTube, Instagram, uh, Old Man Mountain Racks is our handle, and then oldmanmountain.com. And keep an eye out. We've got a lot more stuff coming this year. Heck yeah, buddy. Well, we can't wait to hear all about it. We'll talk to you again soon. Sounds good. Thanks, Patrick. All right, thank you. Now remember to take advantage of that 15% off at Old Man Mountain. You have to use our affiliate link. You can find that affiliate link in the highlighted section of my Instagram profile at Bikes or Death, or you can find it on our website, bikesordeath.com. Now, speaking of affiliate links, we do have something new to announce. We're making it easier for you to find all of the deals, all of the links, everything that we talk about in the podcast in one central location. The easiest way and the best way to keep up with our affiliate links and deals is on the Bikes or Death social media profile, as I just mentioned. So what we've done is we're going to be sharing any deals that we have on our stories, and then we're going to keep them saved in the highlighted section again on Instagram. You can find these also at bikesordeath.com. There's an affiliate link at the very top underneath store, and you can also find those links there. So when you're thinking about doing any shopping this holiday season, please consider using our links. We get a kickback and oftentimes you get a kickback too. And I hope that everybody you're buying for this holiday season is a cyclist. And if not, I think your new year's resolution is becoming quite clear. Just kidding. All right. Well, that's it for today. The bills have been paid and now it is time to get to my chat with Kurt Ref Snyder. And let me tell you what, I thoroughly enjoy talking to Kurt. I can't believe it's been four years since he's been on the podcast, but I'll make sure that doesn't happen again. Now, before we get to my chat with Kurt, Here's Miles Arbor to kick it off with the Bikes for Death theme song. You load up your bike, you ride away from home. You could be with your friends or you could be alone. You ride for a day or maybe more. You just love being in the great outdoors. Everything you need is strapped to your bars, including that new pillow you got from Santa Claus. And then you think, oh shit to yourself. You left that super lightweight tent on the living room shelf. Bikes. Boy, death. Bikes. Boy, death. Podcast. Good morning. Good morning. Finally, we made it. <laughs> we did. It was bound to happen eventually. <laughs> yeah, either that or you're going to get sick of me and tell me to go kick rocks. <laughs> no, I'm a geologist. I'd never say that. <laughs> oh, man, I set that one up and you teed it off very nicely. If this interview goes 
that well. This is going to be a great chat. <laughs> <laughs> oh, how are you doing? I'm doing great, man. I can't believe it's been uh, four years since you've yeah, been on was, the podcast. I saw that. I don't remember where I noticed when the last one was. That was a long time ago. <laughs> I know. Like, it blew my mind. I was like, holy shit. I didn't think it was. I kept scrolling. Like, I'm like, God, how long ago was he on the podcast? Uh, so yeah. it's been too long, man. I apologize. Uh, been oh. busy over here, but I bet you've been busy too. I've been busy. There's so many awesome people in the community to talk to. No worries at all. Yeah, that is that is a problem. Uh, it's a good problem to have. But like, <laughs> it's the best there's just so many storylines and it's different from 2015. I mean, I wasn't in the game in 2015, but you were. But, mm -hmm. you know, now there's like 100 storylines on any given day, whereas back then there might have been like Oh, there's one thing happening, you know, it's like yep. there's one event or there's one guy or girl <laughs> doing something cool. And now it's like all over the world, events and stories and athletes. And it's just mm -hmm. it, it's it's great uh, from a content perspective. But like I do wish that there was more of me. I wish that I had more time <laughs> because things just. Yeah. I mean, there's just conversations and stories that like I don't get to have because uh, there is only one of me. But. Anyway, no yeah, worries. You can only do what you can do. Yeah, buddy. Well, uh, I got a kiddo in the next room, uh, but we're going to hope that this goes well. Uh, she, uh, yeah, she might poke her head in every once in a while, but uh, it right. should be we'll fine. Just, we'll roll with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right. Let's kick this thing off. Kurt, Ref Snyder, welcome to the podcast, man. It's good to have you on, and it's been far too long, and uh, I'm excited to have you back, man. It's going to be good to chat. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for the invite. I'm stoked to be here. I uh, actually went back and listened to our last episode. Um, <laughs> it had been so long. I, I kind of knew the highlights of what we talked about, but I wanted a refresher. And uh, I have to say it was actually a pretty good episode. I really like enjoyed it. You know, sometimes you go <laughs> like I go back on my own podcast and I'm like, usually I'm, it's like mostly like self-critical stuff. It's like, oh, oh yeah. I didn't, you know, I didn't do very good there and that kind of stuff. But I can recommend that one if you want to go back in the archives episode. <laughs> Uh, 24. Uh, yeah, I recommend it. It's funny. I don't know what happened. I think my dyslexia kicked in because I, I legitimately have dyslexia. So this isn't hyperbole, but uh, it's now I'm getting it twisted in my head again. <laughs> I think I, yeah, it's listed as episode uh, 24 on the podcast. But when I announce it, I announce it as episode 25. So I don't know where I got <laughs> off. <laughs> anyway, just ignore that one bit. And uh, anyway, good to have you back let's, on the podcast, man. I'm feeling yeah, chatty. Let's, let's try to have another interesting one. Let's do it. I think we got some stuff to talk about. Um, I'm going to start out this conversation the way I started out the last one. Um, and I don't know if you remember, it was four years ago. The question is, you're at a, uh, a cocktail party and it's black tie and you're standing at the bar waiting <laughs> for your next drink, probably a martini, uh, extra dry. And somebody asks you what you do for a living. Uh, what do you tell them? Oh my gosh. I feel so out of place at first because I've never been to a cocktail party. I have <laughs> never, well, I guess I used to play in an orchestra that we wore pretty fancy clothing, but that's as close as I've come to wearing a tux. Yeah. Um, 
That's what I like about the imagery of this is picturing you <laughs> oh in this environment. Yeah, this is good. Where's your yeah. long hair? Do you still have the long hair? No, the, the mullets, uh, it's been gone for about a year now. So. Oh, well, that kind of ruins. See, you can actually clean up now. I don't know I, if this imagery works as well. <laughs> yeah, but I, yeah, it was a it was a pretty healthy mullet for a while there. Uh, yeah, I don't know exactly. I don't I still don't have a good answer for exactly what I do because I wear so many hats. Uh, but it's uh kind of all things bike, ride bikes, talk about bikes, write about bikes, advocate for bikes, uh, work on bikes, <laughs> a little bit of all that. Um, so I think in short, like I'm a professional mountain biker uh, on the Industry 9 Pivot Pro Backcountry team. Uh, I work for Bikepacking Roots as currently as the route director, routes director there. I have a small coaching company working with endurance, mostly mountain bikers, but endurance cyclists of all, all sorts and do a fair bit of freelance writing these days just kind of sharing stories about about adventures and, and places that i find important and, and things like that yeah well good that's a good summary and it's changed a little bit since the last time you were on because last time you were uh the director i think was your title of bikepacking roots and, yeah um so things have things have just changed a little bit and you had just finished i think i think you were just completed being a professor of geology uh at yep. prescott prescott arizona or prescott, yeah, prescott what, college what? college yeah. yeah yeah yep um yeah so yeah some life changes uh for you over the last four years how how are things going i mean are uh, oh you're <laughs> like full time bikes now. Are are things going well? Uh, you know, this oh, is it's... a this is a medium where we're all trying to figure out how to make a living in it. You know, and like, <laughs> how can I just do bikes all the time? And uh, and 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 as we see, as I talk to a lot of people, it takes your hand in a lot of different pots to kind of make this work as as a as a quote unquote job. Um, and you're one of the people that looks like they're kind of figuring it out. Um, how's it going? Oh, it's. It, I mean, it's fantastic and it's exhausting i think that's the <laughs> the reality of i mean so so much of the time with any kind of job where you're uh kind of building things in large part on your own it's a ongoing passion project and just takes so much time and energy investment and i've been at this for years and years now and so it feels great to be able to kind of have everything coalescing around bikes at this point i was a little worried how like if I would start to get tired of them or, you know, when everything's built around something that you love so much. Uh, but I think I've been able to find a pretty good balance with that. And on the, I mean, with so much of what I do on the bike, it's kind of amazing that, that all of our team sponsors are just incredibly supportive of whatever, however I choose to spend my time. And there's no one out there saying like, oh, you need to go do this race and we want you to do more of that. And spend a little bit more time on this or can you come do that it's it's very self-directed and lets me just kind of pursue the things that i find the most inspiring in terms of riding and racing and i think this this year especially more than any other was was highlighted by that being able to finally have the time to take on a few really big challenges that i've wanted to for a long time and things just didn't quite line up and so that was what i think a total of between riding the iditarod trail in the spring, late winter, spring, that was a month. And then three months on the Continental Divide Trail. That's four months of my year that was just riding and uh -huh. on some really tough trails. So yeah, that's really, that's, those are both ones that have been, been big goals for a long time. And I'm so grateful that I was actually able to uh, make them happen 
this year. And now I'm kind of paying the price with having to catch up on so much with life and work stuff and planning for next year and everything all just kind of coming yeah. piling down on me almost immediately after I finished the CDT. <laughs> so that's that's just the reality of, of what it is. And I think there's a lot of, I don't know, some people call it hustling that goes goes along with it, just like needing to figure out how to make ends meet and not knowing exactly, you know, like this year, things are great. What are things going to look like next year with the ups and downs of the bike industry and the economics around that, that impacts so much of of what I do. And that's something else to navigate. And unfortunately, we're at kind of a major low in things following a very high pandemic high in bike sales and, and what the bike industry was doing. So yeah. kind of at the mercy, mercy of all that and have to figure out how to work with it. So yeah, that's a super important point that um, is worth vocalizing. Because I don't know how much you know, it's so it's it's pretty obvious if you think about it. But like, all of us in the industry in the cycling industry, um, and I'll include myself at this point, we're all at the mercy of the cycling cycle industry at large, mm -hmm. you know, and, yep. um, and, and it's been a wild ride. Like I've been on, in this game for the last <laughs> five years and it's just been a wild ride with COVID and how that impacted everything and how we're still seeing, uh, the impact, the effects on the opposite, the pendulum swing swinging to the other side of the, uh, the equation or the equilibrium, mm -hmm. whatever the pendulums do, they move and it's <laughs> on the other side now, you know what they do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, man, it's, it's like, what, what was the first thing you said? It's like exciting and exhausting or something yeah. along those lines. It's like, yep. that, that was what you said at the very beginning. I was like, yeah, that's it. It's like, I'm super hyped up for this. I love it. It's pa pure passion. Um, but also it's like, it's extremely scary to just be at the whim of this market that you really have no control over, right? Mm -hmm. You're just like, I mean, if companies don't have money, they don't have money, you know, it's not there and, and they got to figure out ways to cut. And um, yeah. that's always, that's always the game. And so uh, it's, it never, do you, do you think, um, do you think that you see a path forward? And if this is too personal, I, I apologize, <laughs> but I'm just in, in curious in general, like, do you see, because you've been in, quote unquote, the game for a long time in, in one way or another, mostly as an athlete, um, mm -hmm. but do you see yourself creating like a really solid uh, job for yourself in this space? <laughs> or or is it just, is this the game that we're playing, you know? Oh, it's, yeah, it's really hard. And I think if if you're, if as an athlete, especially if you're, but I mean, it, it it goes with nonprofits or I mean, with any business, really, if you're reliant on just a single source of revenue or a single kind of place within the world that that money comes from, you're going to end up in trouble in one way or another at some point. And so if as a, say, professional cyclist, you're 100 percent reliant on money just from cycling companies that support you, as soon as the cycling industry hits a downturn, you're going to be probably one of the first people negatively impacted by that. Or if you're a nonprofit and 100% reliant on corporate giving, same thing. Um, and or I should say corporate giving from the cycling world or from the outdoor industry. And so that's I think that's where it becomes really important to have ways to make sure that you're not 100% reliant on any one particular source. And that doesn't matter if you're a professional athlete or a business or or, or what. 
So I think for me, having my hands in a bunch of different pots, that makes things much more comfortable because, you know, so much with with athletes, unfortunately, are like one year contracts and, you know, you're good through the end of the year. And then you don't know if that company will be able to support you next year or if it's going to be at the same level. And that's that's stressful. And it's that season right now with all those conversations. And, you know, we're getting a better feel for where things are and where we're going to be, what we're going to be able to do next year with that. But if I didn't have anything else to fall back on or, you know, with coaching, I can take on a few extra athletes since there's always folks that that are are looking for for help. That's fantastic for me selfishly because I can be just like, oh, I need I need to bring a little bit more support in for next year. I can do some more coaching um, yeah. or more work for bikepacking routes or things like that. Um, so I think that's really important to have those sorts of options. And the reality is, you know, especially if you're a professional racer, like you're you can only do that for so many years and have that the main thing that you do. And I think that's for the the team that Kate Boyle and I started a few years ago. That's one of the things that we both really appreciate about the team and the structure and that we have the support we do from sponsors that only part of what we do is racing and parts adventure and parts like advocacy and trail trail related uh, work and storytelling that we do. And so being able to balance all of those things and be known not just as racers and being supported not just as racers that also really helps uh, because we're not siloed in just one thing and doing one thing that you know the reality is your days are kind of numbered and especially if you're known as like an ultra racer then you can only keep that up for for so long before your body or mind start to to give into the demands of it so i think yeah i think the more diverse things can be in so many ways the, the better in the long term yeah. Yeah. It's one thing I really walked away with uh, from our last conversation was really being impressed by how active you are and how many different projects you're in or, or you know, just roles you're in. Um, and I've just I've learned I mean, it's been four years like I've I've learned uh, <laughs> that that's just that's just the way it is, man. Whenever and it's worth noting, like I think I just think it creates I think it helps to create perspective whenever we see people who are really prominent or visible in the community a lot of times it's it's not they just got lucky or whatever mm-hmm. it's, it's really that they're working their butts off in the background and they're doing they're doing writing over here and they're doing coaching over here and they're racing over here and they're starting a nonprofit here and it's like <laughs> it's a lot of work um, and the end result is like, yeah, you're going to see my name pop up a couple of times. Of course, it helps <laughs> if you win a bunch of races like you have. So that that helps, too. But um, it's not it's not a it's not a turnkey type thing where you you're like an accountant and you get your mm-hmm. master's or MA or BA or MBA. The MBA, that's what it's called, I think. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, and then you go into accounting and you get a six figure job like this is this is a different it's a hustle, like you said. So, yeah, uh, yeah, it, it definitely is. And it's I mean, I. I think, what was it, 2008, 2009, when I got into the bikepacking race world and started winning races and setting records. And it took, well, that was ahead of when the industry was paying any attention to bikepacking or even knew what it was. But yeah, it was probably a decade that was just, you know, I was doing other things. I was a grad student, I was teaching, but letting, uh, letting that side of my passion grow gradually and steadily and building relationships in the cycling industry and being able to slowly ask folks for a little bit more and a little bit more for help. And that eventually turned into something. But yeah, that was a 
decade-long process. And if I just focused on that, it could have been much faster. But it's, yeah, it's not going to happen overnight or in two years. Like it's, it, it takes a lot of patience and dedication yeah. to, to make that happen. And, and some luck and some being in the right place at the right time. Like there's all that factors in. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Uh, the Tipping Point by Malcolm Gladwell is a good boy, book where he talks about, you know, what causes companies or organizations to tip. So he uses like Apple as an example. And like a lot of that is was Steve Jobs being in the right place at the right time. There was a university in his hometown that was the first university in America to get computers. And then they opened up the computer lab to high school students. And so he was in the only high school in the world <laughs> or in the United States oh, wow. where you could access to computers. And then, you know, but like, all those things had to coalesce for Steve Jobs to be Steve Jobs and for Apple to be Apple. And if all those mm -hmm. things didn't happen, then you don't get the t tipping point. And he makes a point through that book that like, we're all to some degree, a victim or a, uh, it's like a, a product of, yeah, the product of circumstance. That's exactly what mm -hmm. I was trying to say. The product of circumstance, the time, right time, right place is a lot of it. And then you got to have the right time, right place. And then you have to have um, the vision and mm -hmm. the work ethic and everything else to take advantage of all these timings and the things. And, and it really is the combination of those two things that mm -hmm. oftentimes create success, whether it's in an individual or a company or whatever. Yeah. You know? So yeah. Oh, that's, uh, that's a, a nice way to summarize it. I think you did it good, and I just resummarized what you said. <laughs> <laughs> but you did way fewer words. <laughs> uh, uh, okay. All right. I win that round. Uh, next question. <laughs> we'll see. I think you'll win this one. Uh, so one of the things that I didn't, I don't think I did well enough on our last episode is is kind of go back and get your backstory. And we don't have to spend too long on it, but... Um, one of the things that I read when I was researching this episode was that you did your first century when you were 13 years old. I so did. I feel like that's a good, maybe that could be a good story or a good uh, entryway into um, how long you've been doing this, how long you've been competitive. Most 13 year olds don't even have the thought to go ride 100 miles on a bike. So can you take <laughs> us back to 13 year old Kurt? I'd love to hear the story of your first century. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is that now with the expansion of, of NICA, the National Interscholastic Cycling Association, high school racing, mountain bike racing and so many cycling teams. It's like you see kids that are, I mean, maybe not quite 13, but like 14, 15 doing huge things and racing 50 mile mountain bike races and racing 24 solo and things like that, which is awesome to see. And back when I was 13, I was in Minnesota, grew up in the Twin Cities, and there was no like junior cycling community at all, like no support for it. Uh, a couple years later, when I started going to mountain bike races and racing in the junior category, there'd be, you know, like two of us in beginner and maybe three in sport and one in expert. And that's it. Uh, it's just there. It wasn't really a thing that was growing in any appreciable way. But for some reason, like I, I always loved bikes when I was a kid, just riding around the neighborhood and riding in the woods by my house. And when I was apparently 13, I was in the, the library, uh, the county library with my mom and Younger folks probably won't remember this, but in the era where print magazines were shared widely at uh, at libraries, they had these kind of tilted shelves that each one would be laid out so you could see the cover of it. And this would be like an entire wall of the libraries, just magazines spread out. 
uh, all the current issues. And I was looking just through the the B section or the bike. I don't remember how they categorized them. If it was alphabetical or by by like topic or category, something like that. Yeah. Uh, I think it was by category there because I think it was a bunch of bike magazines. And bicycling has been around forever. And I was looking at the cover of one of those and just in there, like, you know, they always have these kitschy headlines to try to catch your attention, like five top five ways to do this or you too can ride a century. And I remember seeing that and be like, how do you ride a hundred years? And you know, I didn't, I didn't know anything about, about biking other than that. I liked riding bikes. And so I pulled it off and like opened up found the, the little article. And it was just like a two page spread on riding a century. And it was like, Oh, it's a hundred miles. And I didn't know that was a thing. Like people strive to ride a hundred miles in a, a day. Uh, and it really was just a, a little thing to encourage you to try. And it had these little training progressions, which were these very simple, small tables. And they were, I think, eight weeks or 12 weeks or something like that with if you want to like survive, if you want to thrive, if you want to set a PR or something like that, follow this plan for this many hours and like ride hard this day, ride easy that day kind of thing. And so I took it over to the photocopier and got some coins from my mom, copied those two pages and went home. And I remember like cutting out the little plan and putting it on my bulletin board. And then for some reason, I decided I wanted to do it. And I didn't have a road bike, but my dad took me to, where was it? I guess it was just a, a little shop that, that sold bikes on consignment. And we found a Panasonic team road bike that was a hundred bucks. And he helped me overhaul it because it was in kind of rough shape. And then I just started following this training plan. And I think my parents watched and were like, huh, he's kind of dedicated to this. And eventually when it came time to, to do the the actual 100 mile ride, my dad had gone out and scouted some um, country roads like northwest of the Twin Cities and found this, I think it was a 20 mile loop and just kind of like rolling through farmlands on quiet roads. And he drove me out there and he just sat in a church parking lot all day while I rode laps around that. And he made me peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And I forget what, I think it took me like seven, seven hours, something like that. No which, way. Looking that's, back, not bad for riding so fast. Yeah, yeah, being all alone out there. Uh, Your first and, one, I yeah, I'd say that's a good time. I think my first one was eight and a half hours. You know, like you know. Yeah, so that's that's kind of I, I guess where my fascination with endurance stuff began, and then pretty quickly after that, I got a mountain bike and didn't ride the road bike much at all, and gone back and forth over the years. I was a, a very dedicated roadie road racer for for a few years in the when I was in grad school, did a lot of traveling and racing on the road, but no more. One more personal question. How old are you? <laughs> uh, as of yesterday, 42. Hey, happy birthday. Thanks. Yeah. I'm 40. I'm 43. I thought I, I had a feeling we were we were close <laughs> in age. Yeah. 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 Quite close. Quite close. Uh, yeah. Happy birthday. That's that's a uh, good timing, at least for me to be able to wish you a happy birthday. Yeah. What's amazing is so that took place like 30 years ago, 29 years ago. Oh, my gosh. And yep. <clears throat> your memory of that is so good. It, that's amazing that you remember all of that, all those details. Like you remember the way the magazines were. You remember you copied two pages. You got quarters from your mom. Like I, the I whole think thing. that's that's how those impactful experiences are. Is like they you think They're about sticky. them, and the more you think about something like that, the more clearly you remember it. I don't know if it, it probably evolves a little bit through time since you never remember it quite exactly the same way as it happened or yeah. the prior time you remembered it. But yeah, it's a version of the memory. <laughs> yep. It's close enough. Uh, 
And no one can prove you wrong except for your mom. And I don't know if she's around. So she is. And she has an absolutely amazing memory. So don't tell her. <laughs> she'll, <laughs> she'll probably correct it. <laughs> She'd be like, it was three pages, Kurt. Come on. <laughs> uh, that is a fascinating story. I feel like we could learn a lot about you just from that one story. Like, how many 13 year old kids pick up a magazine, see you riding 100 miles, and then follow the training plan and do it and not only do it but like you did this by yourself this was a self-motivated thing there wasn't a team there wasn't a prize there wasn't a there was a magazine on a rack you're like oh that looks fun you stuck it on your wall you <laughs> made a training plan and then you and he, you did and it and you got a little support though but I did. we'll, we'll my, let that pass <laughs> my parents were like they never pushed me toward anything in the athletic realm like i was a nordic skier in high school and they never like there was no uh nothing other than just standing back and watching me and cheering me on and doing what i like if i needed something being there to to help with it that that was definitely their approach and i think at the time i wished for maybe a little bit more seeing you know my friends being like pushed toward oh you should go do this training camp you should work with that coach and i think in retrospect it was really good because all those folks didn't burn out or the, all those folks did burn out and i just kept on doing my thing for 30 years now and haven't burned out of any of that. And so I think they, they had a really healthy um, stance and all of that. And I really appreciate the way they were, they were supportive, but um, just kind of letting me choose the direction 100%. A big part of, I, well, I don't know how big of a part, but it's certainly a factor in being successful at solo supported ultra endurance of, of any endeavor, but let's say bikepacking and cycling, you have to be somewhat comfortable and uh, and keep your own company pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, hold on one second, Sloan. <laughs> okay, I'll get it after my podcast. Okay, hold on, please. <laughs> no worries. Yes. Oh, Sloan made you a birthday card. Happy what? birthday from Sloan. Oh, thank you, Sloan. <laughs> Sloan's listening in. <laughs> <laughs> That's very sweet, Sloan. That's thank really you. sweet. <laughs> Uh, I knew we were going to get uh, an interruption. That was a pretty good one. <laughs> That's a great one. Uh, what was I saying? You're talking about being kind of self, self-motivated, good at keeping your company yeah. with yeah. yourself. And yeah. And so the fact that you did this at 13 by yourself, um, I does that speak to just a personality trait of yours like you're self-motivated you keep your own company well i'm putting words in your mouth but i'm wondering <laughs> uh i'm wondering what that is if that if that tells us a little bit about kurt i think so i think i think you know there's there's a motivation there to just see what i'm capable of and that's apparently always been there and motivation to just try try different things which has always been there sometimes stronger than other times, stronger of an urge than other times. And I think the the self-directed element of it is so important. And that's been so helpful with my success in in everything in so many years. I mean, I think going to grad school and working through that whole process for God, eight, eight years, I think it took for yeah, for master's and PhD, that's that requires so much dedication and self-direction and self-motivation. And so I think all of that you know, the the racing and riding I did as a kid and as a teenager really helped develop that, but it was already there. And I think that's one of the, the ways that 
that our sport does cross over into to real life is that if you can figure out how to how to focus on what's going to make you self successful when no one else is looking and no one else is there to support you and it's something that you really want to make happen if you can do that for yourself in private like it's going to be so much easier to do that for for others or for where you work or things like that um when when folks are looking but uh yeah so i think some things some things have changed dramatically since i was 13 and some things haven't haven't actually changed that much which is interesting <laughs> to think about yeah it's through sports and i think really through endurance efforts that we 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 learn about ourselves and by learning about ourselves we teach ourselves about ourselves right and like mm -hmm. um those those are tools those are absolutely tools that you can put in your your life ar arsenal for dealing with a, a variety of circumstances and i really do think i i think you said it quite well and i mean i feel like a, a broken record but man this this sport <laughs> specifically really teaches you how to be resourceful it teaches you that you can rely on yourself, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's an important thing is like knowing that you can trust yourself to do hard things and you can rely on yourself and you be successful. Like learning that about yourself is a really good thing to know. And then once you know that you can take on anything, I feel like, I mean, what, what, you know, I don't know. I'm, I'm one of these people, man, <laughs> I think anything is possible really. Like if you put your time and your attention to something like, you know, there's tipping points and there's luck and there's all these other factors. But man, I, I really I'm a big believer in uh, in, in kind of uh, putting your time and attention and your focus on where you want to go. There's an analogy. Ooh, I, I, I always use analogies and I hate that I do it, but I can't help it. Uh, I'm a simple minded person. But like the I have a, my first tattoo was an arrow right here. And mm -hmm. the whole like symbolism behind that is like with with archery, you know, you spend your whole time on your your form, your posture, your breathing, your aiming, you know, all these things have to be right. And then once you have your target, you release the arrow. And so I'm, a, I'm just a big believer in like um, pointing that arrow where you want it to go and like and but it takes all these other things. Mm -hmm to get that arrow where you want it to go. But I think if you do all the other things, I think, yeah, I'm a, I'm a believer in people, you know, and I'm going a little bit off on a tangent, but to bring it back around, I think it starts with being able to believe in yourself. Sorry, totally. you good? Yeah, I was, yeah. I was just going to add the self-confidence side of it is that you need some of that, like yeah. to take on hard things and challenging things and intimidating things. You need some self-confidence and you know, doesn't hurt at all to have people cheering you on from from the sidelines, so to speak. But the more you're able to accomplish when it comes to those hard things, the bigger your self-confidence gets and the easier it makes it to take on more of those in the future. So right. there's this very positive feedback, this, this snowball effect when it comes to that. And uh, that's, you know, that's that's another thing that affects the way you approach anything in life and your outlook on so many things, too. So. This could be an interesting segue. Let's let's continue this thought experiment. Um, let's skip the next 29, 30 years. So, you know, <laughs> you went on your 13 uh, or you're at 13, you went on a 100 mile ride. And then, you know, now at, at 42, um, you just finished um, the Continental Divide Trail, 3,300 mm -hmm. miles. Um, 
let's let's start here. What was your belief in yourself going into the CDT? Um, you know, at this stage in your life, having amassed all those experiences in life, I mean, where are mm-hmm. you at right now where you can tackle something this big, you know? Yeah, that, well, so this, the CET for folks that, that don't know about the trail, it's, there's the Pacific Crest Trail, the Appalachian Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail as the three kind of marquee cross the country hiking trails. And they're all, all three are congressionally designated national scenic trails. The PCT and the Appalachian Trail are completely closed to bikes, 100%. And the CDT is about, I think like 65% of it has bikes actually allowed on it. And so it's the only of those three trails that's mostly open to bikes or open to bikes at all. Uh, And it's really hard. It's a hiking trail. Like most of it does not have trail that's designed with bikes in mind. There's long sections of that the trail was never built. It was just sort of hiked in over the years. And it is... Well, for comparison, it uses a bunch of the Colorado Trail passing through Colorado, and those miles feel so remarkably, I want I don't want to say easy, but easier than most of the CDT as a whole, because they're so trafficked. They're well-constructed, even though they're physically really demanding and technically pretty dang hard. When I got there, I was very glad to be on that trail and get to kind of be able to relax a little bit. So that that. For folks that know the Colorado Trail, that says a lot about the CDT as a whole. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll we'll go back and I we'll fill in some of the history on the CDT uh, to fill in some context. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So but, yeah, yeah. So so I first encountered the CDT when I was living in Boulder in grad school and was up training. I think I was training for the Grand Loop, if I remember right. Uh, so this would be back in two thousand. Eight. No, it was 2009. It was when I was training for the the um, Tour Divide, my first time on that. And I saw on a map some single track up in this area way up high above um, above town. And I was like, oh, I wonder if that actually exists on the ground. And so I went up on a, a long training ride to find it. And there was this little post with the CDT emblem and said, like, Continental Divide Trail. I was like, what is the Continental Divide Trail? And, you know, at this point, I was training to race the Great Divide mountain bike route which is all dirt roads pretty much. And I went home, plugged Continental Divide Trail into search engine and discovered there's a single track route across the country that parallels or kind of crisscrosses the Great Divide mountain bike route the whole way down. I was like, yeah, what? I love single track. Like that was, I love single track more than anything else when it comes to riding. And there I was getting ready to race dirt roads across the country. And in my head, I was like, man, I wish we were racing the single track route across the country, not knowing anything about how hard it is or that long sections are closed to bikes or anything like that. Uh, and pretty quickly, I forgot about it and focused on racing the divide. And But that was always in the back of my mind, uh, that, that experience, just seeing the trail. And I started encountering it in more places uh, in the West. And I don't know, it was maybe three or four years no, it's probably just a couple years later. I ordered the CD set that this guy had. Uh, he sent him three bucks, and he sends you these really nice detailed topo maps that had the the CDT and all the different alternates that he had found or people had hiked along it. Because at that point, it was a kind of an unofficial thing. Like there was no technically official route that everyone agreed. Like this is the CDT. It's like well, probably this trail, and you can link through on this if you want, or if this one goes over a summit or something like that. And so I got the CD set map set looked at that a bunch and was 
distracted by other race pursuits. Uh, and so never, never really dug in too deeply on that. And then just that kind of pattern continued that I'd see it in another place and then I'd see it somewhere else. I'm like, oh, this looks super cool. And then in 2014, and we can come back to this, but Scott Morris and Esther Harini went out and were the first people to ride the full length of a bike legal version of the CDT. And paying attention to that, like they blogged about it, had awesome photos to kind of take people along while they were out there. And at that point, it's like, oh man, this looks so awesome and so much harder than I ever expected it would be. And then, so that was 2014. It was, I think that was when the seed was really firmly planted in, in my head, like, okay, I'm going to ride this. But it literally took almost a decade from then, I think, to build up the courage and self-confidence to want to actually take it on, knowing that I was going to be able to have fun doing it and not just be struggling the whole way. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, on our last uh, episode, our last conversation, after doing the Triple Crown, you made a comment along the lines of, I'm done with this type of racing for a while and, and maybe uh -huh. forever. Like you were kind of, you, and you said something along the lines of like, you were tired of putting your body through mm -hmm. that, you know, I mean, yeah, you've been doing this a while endurance sports. I mean, it's, it's a huge physical uh, endeavor and it takes a lot out of you. So it's interesting that now you're like talking about, you know, at the same time, you're like, cause you were doing the triple crown and all, a bunch of other races. And it's like, you're trying to build up the courage uh, to go and do it and to be able to do it and, and have fun. So yeah, maybe, maybe we can pick up on, on that thought process. Like how did you, uh, yeah. How did you build up the courage and how did you get back to a place where you were ready to take on another big ride like this, you know? Yeah. Oh man, that's a tough one. Cause I don't know exactly where the tipping point so to speak, you keep bringing up that term. I don't know quite where it was because you you need to obviously be able to have the time, like three months of time to go do something like this. And if that time is not readily available in your calendar, it's easy to just be like, eh, no, I, I'm not ready yet. Or, you know, to kind of come up with excuses for, for why the time isn't right to take on a big challenge like that. And this this year, well, last year, looking forward to this year, that it was the first time where I felt like I actually had, you know, a big chunk of time, three, three plus months that I could take on something like this. And so I think that helped to just suddenly have that opportunity there, that that space on the calendar. Uh, but I think the other thing was that just some of these other trails that I've spent a lot of time on the last few years and done, I mean, during the pandemic was chase the <laughs> the quote unquote FKT on the Wyoming range trail, which no, I think I was the first person to through ride that trail. It's only 80 miles, but it's well, still the hardest single trail I think I've ever ridden. And for, I don't know exactly why, but I included that in my CDT ride this summer and it was still the hardest trail I've ever ridden <laughs> sandwiched by a whole bunch of other hard stuff. Uh -huh. uh, but, you know, doing, doing things like that and mostly enjoying them, despite how ridiculously demanding and challenging the trails are and how much hiking there is along the way. And I throw around the, the kind of notion of normalizing difficult a lot, especially with athletes I coach. And in recent years, I've just spent so much more time on really hard trails 
in the backcountry and doing things where moving four miles an hour all day is the norm. And that's just that made it so much easier to think about doing something like the CDT, where like there's more of that on that trail than any other trail I've ridden, obviously. But if I can go out and have fun doing that for a full day or three days, you know, that's so much better than getting out there for a day and being like overwhelmed by it and not finding any enjoyment in it. So I think that realization, like I really do enjoy those sorts of trails, even if the riding necessarily isn't all that great for half the day or three quarters of the day at times, um, wanting and being willing to work through those really hard sections to get to the parts that are absolutely amazing and that there's no other way to experience than than dealing with that. I think once I kind of realized that that shift in my perspective, that made it so much easier to think about, well, 3,000 miles of really hard stuff. I think I could probably do that. <laughs> Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so let's fill in some more of the history of this, of this route. Um, after Scott and Esther did it in, I think you said 2014, mm-hmm. um, you know, why, I'm curious, like, why uh, nobody else has attempted it? Um, oh, you know, man. Is, is the route developed? Um, why, Why? I mean, it's like, it's so obvious. It's a it's a border-to-border. It, it parallels the Tour Divide. It's single-track option versus a, a dirt, um, mm-hmm. you know, a, a double-track mostly option. Um, it sounds hard, but also there's a lot of people in this space that like to do hard things. So like, yeah. what, what's preventing people? What, why are you the second person to do this in, in a matter of 10 <laughs> years? You know, like what's going oh, on there? So, yeah. So when, when Scott and Esther wrote it and so that was 2014, the bikepacking community was a lot smaller than it is today. It was much more, uh, I think mountain bike focused at that time. Like there wasn't the huge explosion in gravel. If you look at the, the bikepacking races that were around at that point, it was a, a lot of single track races uh, and not too many gravel type ultras and bikepacking races at that point. And so at the time, you know, Scott Nestor finished it. And I think a lot of us in the community were like, wow, this is going to be the next big bikepacking adventure route. Like this is going right. to draw a lot of attention, a lot of people. And two years later, Aaron Weinsheimer, from Salida wrote it. He was the, I guess, third person. And then that was 2016. And then no one since. So it clearly did not become the next big thing. Uh, no. like, like we thought. And what was really, really impressive about Scott and Esther's ride on it was that, you know, no one had ridden, no one had tried to ride the whole thing. People ride sections of it. Like there's certain sections that are super popular with, with mountain bikes on day rides. A uh, big chunk of the Colorado trail is also part of the CDT, so that part's known and familiar. But there's so much that is very unknown to mountain bikers. And so many sections that either were closed to bikes, like wilderness areas, wilderness study areas, recommended wilderness areas, and then some odd sections that don't have any special designation, but are just not open to bikes. And it's really challenging, even today, to figure out where those sections are, what the current bike access is, some of them, what you see on maps is different from what you see signed on the ground. Uh, some of them, if you call the BLM, for example, in New Mexico and ask them about it, they're like, oh, yeah, bikes are fine there. And then you go out there and every single road crossing is very clearly signed, no bikes. So there's a lot of confusion around where bikes are allowed, where they're not. And then getting around some of those sections 
is easy. Getting around some of those is really challenging to figure out what the best way to do is to not end up on just like busy highways or something like that. And so Scott Nestor had that to contend with. And they had so much trail that they just had no idea. Is this going to be like two days to cover 60 miles? Or is that going to take three days or a day? And then some sections are, you know, 200 plus miles between resupply options. And that's 200 miles of like mostly single track. And if you don't know if it's going to be 35 miles a day or 60 miles a day, like that means it's really hard to plan. Yeah. So they there was so much uncertainty for them uh, riding the route. And even back then, like navigational resources were not fantastic. Like now there's an app app for the trail that the the coalition, the organization behind the trail has put together uh, with uh, far out guides. So I know some people have used that in the bikepacking community for the Great Divide mountain bike route, uh, or sorry, for the for uh, the Western Wildlands route. Great Divide has a different app. Um, but that makes it so much easier to see like, oh, there's water here. There's somebody left a comment two days ago that said this creek is still flowing. Whereas 10 years ago, there, you know, Scott and Esther were using PDF topo maps and trying to figure out which way was the best way to go and yeah. had no idea where there was going to be water. So, so much, I mean, it was a whole different world of adventure for the first folks trying to bike that years ago. Uh, and so that, you know, that was, it was incredible to see them pull that off and incredibly inspiring too. Yeah, that's one of my my thoughts while I was preparing for this interview is one, how challenging putting together a route like this and how daunting it would be because, I mean, when you're the first, yeah, there's a 60-mile section of single track. You don't know if it's going to take you one day or two days. or I mean, there's just so many unknowns. Mm-hmm. So my my thought for you or my question for you is um, – you know how much how much resources are available now obviously probably a little bit more but still a lot of probably unknowns i would assume like how much mm-hmm. how much of the route you rode is the same route they rode you know did you yeah, develop and, your own route like uh, yeah and things have changed in the last decade like the the continental divide coalition and the forest service have been steadily working on building new sections of cdt to get it off you know, off motorized routes, off dirt roads, things like that. So there's lots of new sections of trail. Uh, there's sections that it's always uncertain how much deadfall there's going to be across the trail. And I mean, I probably carried my bike over 3000 trees, you know, like a huge amount. And it could have been so much worse, just given how much of the trail goes through areas that have sustained uh, experienced a tremendous amount of beetle kill. And so there's just standing dead trees everywhere. Mm-hmm. One storm can blow down hundreds. And so there's uncertainty in that because that can, I mean, that can make a 50 mile section and turn from a day and a half to three days very easily. But there are, I mean, there's so much more for information now about the trail because it's getting more popular. Like last year, I think there were 400 people or so that hiked the whole thing. So it's not super popular at all, but there's at least a fair bit of use out there now. So there's the app and that tells you like, quote unquote, what the official route is and has information on water sources and users can can submit comments to just share what the status of anything, like any place there's a, a waypoint on the app, you can leave a comment on it. So that's a really good resource that is, I mean, especially for water planning is incredible. Um, trail Forks, the mountain bike trail app wasn't around when Scott Nestor wrote it years ago. Most of the CDT is on there. It turns out that most of the information about what the trail is like is completely off on it. Like whoever has entered most of that has either 
put very little time into it or there's just there's a lot of false information on there like this section's open to bikes no it's actually closed to bikes or this section's closed to bikes no it's actually open to bikes like it might be someone that hates cyclists and it's just oh putting misinformation to get I, us in trouble that crossed my mind um so there's a there's a few stretches that there's good information from local folks that have clearly taken the time to put it in there so that's you know that's there but it's not a very valuable resource um Scott has been amazing over the years of sharing his route with folks that are interested in potentially riding it. And so the whole backbone of the route that I followed was based on his GPS track from from their ride in 2014 and then modified to try to incorporate all the new sections of trail that have been built. And then the I think the biggest difference was with some of the the large wilderness area bypasses that that were needed. Um, Scott and Esther just pretty much by default hopped onto the Great Divide mountain bike route to get around most of those, which is really convenient that it's usually somewhere nearby that you can just get on that and hammer out some some dirt road miles that are usually fairly quiet roads and and get around the wilderness areas that are closed to bikes. And for some reason, I thought that, well, let's let's incorporate as much single track as possible. And, you know, some people are like single track or, or nothing like there's that devoted to it. And I'm, that was not my approach. I just was like, I don't really feel like spending the next 200 miles going around the Bob Marshall wilderness on dirt roads like there's got to be trail. And so for some of those those long ones, I put together what on paper looked like phenomenal detours. And holy cow, like the first one. You have to go around Glacier Park because that's close to bikes. And then I got like 10 miles of CDT. And then the CDT goes into the Bob Marshall Wilderness, which is one of the biggest wilderness areas in the, the lower 48. And I had been eyeing this sequence of trails that you can link up along the Rocky Mountain front. In um, Basically, it's right where the, the mountains hit the Great Plains in north northern Montana. And it's absolutely gorgeous country, like rolling topography on the plains, like really beautiful grasslands. And then these kind of series of limestone cliffs like stair step cliffs that just climb up away from the plains and it looks kind of like a huge wave like white waves crashing onto the plains from a distance like it's stunning and so i'd i'd looked at these and drawn up a route through these a few years ago for another trip that one didn't come together I tried again the next year got shut down by snow so that didn't happen so i was like oh, i'll just follow follow that route i put together and some of it it seemed like no one uses those trails other than grizzly bears, which is like bear tracks on bear tracks on bear tracks and elk. Oh, and then probably a handful of hunters in the fall. Like no maintenance, no use, hard to follow the trails. And this was starting on day two of my trip. And that day was like climbing over, God, probably 300 down trees on this section of trail in the Badger 2 Medicine. I ran into a trail crew out there of three, three, four service folks that had cleared like the first mile of the trail. And that was all they had time for on their hitch. And we're headed back out and we're just like wide eyed seeing somebody on a bike there. And like, where are you going? It's like Mexico oh, well, over this pass and then uh, Mexico. And you're like, <laughs> there's like eight miles of deadfall ahead. <laughs> I was like, well, yeah, <laughs> I'll get through it. And oh my oh, gosh, man. it was like I that took the rest. Of, I saw them at like probably 11 a.m. And it took literally the rest of the day to get through that eight miles. The mosquitoes were horrendous. And I was just, you know, at that point, I'd probably, I don't know, probably just two days of food on my bike. So it wasn't too heavy. But 
I got to the end of that and up to this pass and was just absolutely worked. And it was a stunning place to camp. Like the mosquitoes weren't too bad. Huge views of these limestone peaks and a very clear trail with minimal deadfall. I could see like going down the valley. So I knew I'd have good riding in the morning, but I was sitting there at camp just like, what am I thinking? Like this, (laughs) I should have, I should have researched these, these trails a little bit more. And then like two days later, ended up on a section that on paper there was a trail there on the maps you know a nice little dotted line i've gotten kind of a reputation for following dotted lines and just going with them and this one dotted line continued and then it went on a private property and the trail i was supposed to follow went up a cliff like a legitimate cliff and it's one of these limestone palisades and uh little mountaineering throat in Oh my, and I knew, so I knew there was trail on the other side. I had a friend that had ridden down and he's like, it's a phenomenal descent, but he had just done an out and back. So I knew like Mm. literally, I think it was a mile and a half from where I was, there was good trail, but there's a cliff in between. And the options were either, you know, backtrack 10 miles to get back to a dirt road and then take that like all the way out on the plains around this section and then come back into the next Canyon South, or I could go up the cliff. And so I took my bike apart. I think I took three trips up take my bike up in pieces and you know it wasn't like a vertical cliff it was like very scrambly like you need your hands to get up it pretty loose and got up to the top and was again like absolutely worked by the end of it but the trail was at the top i camped right at the trail and then in the morning had a phenomenal descent down and then some some easier dirt road miles to get around some uh another little bit of wilderness that blocked the, the north south through access there but it was i think that detour around the bob marshall took five days i think for a couple hundred miles and i could have taken dirt road on the other side of the wilderness and been through it in like a day and a half but i was like i I want to take trail and i remember just very distinctly at right at dusk on that i guess it was the sixth day on the trail getting back to the official cdt and i'd climbed up you know i had to carry my bike on my back up through this burn area up the last like mile uh up this what was mostly really good riding up a valley on some pretty backcountry trail and got to the intersection with the CDT and there's like the little tiny faint trail that I came up on and then this ribbon of like smooth dirt single track with a bunch of hiker footprints on it and that was the CDT and you could just see it like weaving off on the ridge line to the south and I was so relieved to just be back on like good trail (laughs) which was hilarious like it was a great I think in retrospect, it was a decent way to set the tone for the trip, start off with some really hard miles. And then the actual hard CDT isn't going to seem quite as hard, which is good. But I was worked by the, like the end of that first week, I was so exhausted, just physically, my whole body, my arms from pushing my back from like literally carrying my bike on my back up steep stuff. And so let's let's talk about part of what your motivation is for this route um because i'm gonna follow up with like it's got to impact part of your decision making here like why are you climbing (laughs) the cliff instead of doing you know the dirt and stuff so like I, I think we might have mentioned it earlier in this episode. If not, I think your role at, at Bikepacking Roots is route developer, uh, mm-hmm. something like that. Um, so, and that's a big part of what Bikepacking Roots is doing is developing routes. That's one way we can promote bikepacking and, and help with mm-hmm. access and stuff. And that's a big part of what you do. 
I assume that there's a uh, you're trying to maybe develop this for bikepacking routes as as well. So like, what's your goal and thought process? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think so much it's so ingrained in me now. Like so much of the riding I do, I'm always thinking of of what would this be like for other folks? Like, is this yeah. something that would be a route that's enjoyable for the masses or for a subset of the masses or no one at all besides me kind of thing and getting back to one of your questions from a bit ago like why don't more people ride the cdt why is it kind of off the radar of the bikepacking community and one it's because there's virtually no resources for it out there um for riding for bikepacking on it and two it, for the people that do that are aware of it it just has a very well-placed reputation of being incredibly difficult like it's as a whole, it's way harder than where pretty much anybody bike packs at all these days. And so that's just that's enough of a deterrent that most folks don't go out on it. And there are short sections like northern New Mexico's got a 90 mile section that's phenomenally rideable. It's a really good section of trail, very quiet, like not many hikers on it, not many equestrians and not many mountain bikers. But it's probably one of the most popular sections other than the CDT bits or, the, or sorry the colorado trail bits for bike packers to to ride so there's sections that see use but not many and so one of the things that i was thinking about is like well yeah what what about some resources for the trail for bike with bike packers in mind and like resources geared toward bike packers and the whole trail like that's i honestly don't think it's worth putting time into developing resources for the whole thing because so few people are ever going to ride it and it's something that you can like if you have the confidence and desire to ride something like that clearly you have a lot of experience bike packing and in the backcountry and can piece together if there's resources for certain sections and there's the app like there's enough for people to get out mm -hmm. um, and ride it if they want to what i really like the idea of is kind of like what are the highlights of the cdt like what are the best three or four or five day sections to ride and those are the places that the masses and I, but when i say the masses it's like the people that like bikepacking on challenging backcountry single track not the bulk of the bikepacking community but more people than than bikepack on those sections today um, those are the sections that it would be great to have some resources for and it was actually really uh kind of fortuitous that the continental divide trail coalition that's the nonprofit behind the trail um they somebody there reached out to me when they heard I was going to ride the trail and asked if I was interested in working together to put together some resources for some like highlight sections. And that that project got derailed by some concerns about what is the impact that increases in mountain bike use on the trail would have on hikers, because the trail, it's a congressionally designated national scenic trail, which means there was an act that went through Congress and the language in there specifically says for equestrians and hikers that's what the trail is for and that was 1978 so it's not like mountain bikers were much of a group a user group at that point but that organization is there 100 to support hikers and equestrians on the trail not bikes and because the trail is not yet complete they can't justify putting any time or money into the trail for bikes um which is understandable and so uh, what ended up happening was I, I did a, a kind of working in consultation with them, put together a kind of extensive survey or assessment um, 
form that I was filling out for kind of each section of trail about, you know, what what are the speeds of bikes on this trail, which are slow, like 95% <laughs> of the time, like barely faster than hiking speed. Uh, and, you know, what are sight lines like? What how is the trail signed for bike access today? What's the sustainability of the trail itself? Um, like how would it hold up to increased bike use, which interestingly is also the same as horse use. Like if a trail is not sustainable for bikes, it's not sustainable for equestrians either um, in terms of how it's going to hold up over time. So lots of things like that. And those are all all data that can be used in, in decision-making around like access on sections or on what sections can we reasonably send people toward to ride more and what sections would it be potentially detrimental to the trail or to the, the user experience. And the reality is most of the trail actually has remarkably good sight lines um, in part because your average riding speed is, you know, like running speed. So if you can see 15 feet on the ahead on the trail, if you're going running speed, it's great sight line um, overall. And it was actually really interesting to see that some of the places with the worst sight lines, the most trail degradation and the most likelihood for user conflict always in Colorado, you know, super popular sections of trail around like Breckenridge and things like that, that are overgrown. You can carry speed and there's tons of hikers on the trail, you know, just recipe for, for bad experiences for everyone. So there's definitely places that um, are more suitable and less suitable for, for that. And some of the most popular places are some for, for bikepacking right now are some of the least suitable in terms of what impact we might have on other users. So that was really interesting to see. Um, but yeah, so, so my goal, what's that? No, go ahead. No, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say my goal is to, to work on some, uh, some kind of highlight sections, um, with bikepacking routes for, you know, what's, what are the two best places in Montana to go, go do a, a, three or four or five day ride. And a lot of them you can loop on the Great Divide mountain bike route. So you don't even have to do them as point to point. Um, yeah. Point to point rides, which are always, you know, logistically more challenging. Uh, so that's that's the hope. Got a got a bunch of other other projects I need to work through first. But <laughs> yeah. Was that your goal going into the CDT? Did you did you approach it thinking, oh, it would be cool to open up the whole trail to somebody and then through your process realize, okay, this is more logistically or more physically demanding and maybe we need to do highlighted sections or were you aware of that going into it and, and approached it? From from talking with with Scott and Esther about it, it was pretty clear that that coming up with a you know, an official CDT, or I should say an unofficial CDT bikepacking route, like it would be awesome on paper, and a few people would be really stoked about it. And it just, it's not worth the time investment for creating something like that, since so few people would benefit from it. Um, but highlighting those, those good, the really good sections, that's, that's where the much more helpful impact yeah. is going to be. And like, it would be, it would be great to put together. And this is what Scott did. He just has a literally a GPS track he'll share with you of like, here's what I think the best, best way to ride it is with the detours around the wilderness areas, have at it, modifying it, however you see fit. Um, and I'll probably do something like that too, but it's like the cliff that I went up in the getting around the Bob Marshall, like, yeah, I mean, there is a trail on maps, but it's not where I'm going to send people like that's not <laughs> it's not something I would I would recommend for anyone. And there's access issues considering like it's it's kind of like a, an abandoned trail at this point. Um, and so we're better off making sure if we're going to send people onto things that it's actually like legit trail on the ground, legit access, all of that. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
one of my patrons asked a question that I thought was good, and I think you've kind of answered it, um, but to just kind of tie a bow on it, his question was essentially just because you can doesn't mean you should, right? And like, <laughs> where where does this trail land in the just because you can doesn't mean you should spectrum, you know? Like, um, who are the people that are going to want to take on the CDT, right? Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm so glad that I did it. It was, I knew it was going to be ridiculously difficult. That's what it was. That was the kind of experience I was looking for along with, you know, traversing the whole the whole spine of the Rockies through the country. Um, I think it's a really personal thing. Like folks that that want that sort of really raw backcountry experience that goes on for days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks and months and months, it's for them. There aren't that many people in the bikepacking community that want that sort of thing. And I think one of the interesting questions I got afterward was like, how much, how much of it was type two fun versus type one fun? Yeah. And it's all based on outlook and perspective and expectations and everything like that. And I mean, I would say like 98% of it was type one fun for me. Like still was ridiculously hard, but it was, I still was able to enjoy it in the moment. And that's, I think that's the kind of thing that most folks need to be able to go out and ride something like that day in and day out for three months or four months or however long it's going to take is that that ability to find enjoyment even when it's really difficult. And it's just not the kind of enjoyment that most people find in, <laughs> <Yeah>. in bikepacking. <laughs> so I, I don't think it's it's ever going to be super popular because of that. And it doesn't matter how much trail work gets done. Like it's always going to be physically really difficult, technically really difficult. Yeah. Um, and, you know, not a lot of resupplies along the way. So just everything is kind of stacked against somebody riding it and feeling like, oh, it's a great, great kind of bikepacking vacation. Like, no, it's, you're working for it every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good disclaimer and I appreciate your honesty, but I don't think that you're in the business of sending people out into the wilderness, uh, with false expectations. <laughs> so I, you know, you've been, you used to lead, if people listen to the first episode, uh, lead students out on geological bikepacking trips and, mm -hmm. um, and, and through bikepacking routes and stuff, I know, uh, sending people out into the wilderness to recreate responsibly, it has to be a, a top priority. So for you on the CDT, uh, did did you have fun? Did you? Uh, I, had a, I had a I had a great time. <laughs> it was there were yeah there were definitely days that I struggled a little bit to find as much enjoyment um, in Montana. Some of the deadfall is I mean when you've got five miles with I don't know thirty trees down or 30 like piles of trees every mile. Yeah. Like it's hard to enjoy that. It's those were legitimately like, I think the most dangerous times on the trail is like scrambling over deadfall with a heavy bike and tired legs and branches that are broken off by hikers to make it easier. And so they're, you know, standing up like sharp spears and you're having to get through those and just getting progressively more tired. Like that's, that's tedious and sketchy. And like, that was hard to find enjoyment. in. unfortunately that wasn't every day that was, you know, a sections every few days for the most part. Um, the bugs in Montana were horrendous at times, like in the, the Beaverhead mountains, there was the worst mosquitoes I've ever seen in the lower 48 and black flies and horse flies all together. 
and was so hard to tolerate at times, especially when it was really hot and I was just completely worked. So that was, and I didn't have a tent to sleep in at night. I just had a tarp and a head net. So when they didn't subside at night and were still bothering you all night long, that was really draining mentally. Yeah. Uh, My daughter's singing it, Taylor Swift at the top of our lungs. I don't know if you can hear, but if it, I can't hear that, <laughs> you can or cannot. No, I can't. Okay. Oh, For great. anyone listening on the podcast, I apologize, but I'm a single dad. <laughs> this is the life we live. <laughs> uh, were there any yes. times where you, it is interesting. I, I, I didn't, I assume that you were approaching this. And again, it was just an assumption. I assumed you were approaching this really as a way to develop it, knowing, you know, your role at bikepacking routes and you have a history of developing and, and bringing mm-hmm. routes to market, so to speak. Um, so I, I thought that that was your motivation. And so I'm like, oh, thinking, okay, Kurt, he has to climb that cliff because he has to know what it's like. And <laughs> he, he can't take the dirt. He's got to climb over the trees. Um, so you were making a lot of those choices just personally. You were like, okay, yeah. well, this is the line and I'm going to just do it. Was there ever a time where you didn't follow the line? <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm really stubborn when it comes to that. Like, even if I'm the one that made the line, like on those wilderness bypasses at times, like, yeah, there were dirt roads I could have taken, but like, I really wanted to know what the trail was like. And, it, you know, <laughs> there it wasn't even CDT. It was just like some old backcountry trail on Forest Service land that, you know, I don't know anything about. No one knows or cares that I'm out on it. Or right. if I take a dirt road, like no one will ever even notice if I hop on the dirt road. It's not for anyone else. It's just this in the back of my head, like, I need to know what that's like. And... I, you know, I get super excited about linking lines together, little dashed lines or dotted lines on maps and get strangely compelled to actually follow through on the ground, which I think sometimes is great to have that stubbornness and sometimes is uh, ridiculously questionable uh, with (laughs) making choices around that. Uh, But it was, yeah, it was just, it was all with a trip like that, it needs to be a selfish pursuit with how hard it is. Like you need to want to do it for yourself. Yeah. On the CDT sections, like I really did want to ride as much of the bike legal CDT as I reasonably could along the way. And there were times where, uh, like in Southern, Southern Colorado, when I was riding through the San Juans and that's a, a pretty long section between resupplies, like I think five, five days or so between what would it be? Uh, for folks that know it's like the, Buena Vista area on the CDT all the way. Well, I guess I was able to resupply Monarch Pass. So Monarch Pass to Creed, which is riding CDT to Sil- or Colorado Trail to Silverton, but not dropping into town and then doubling back, going like way back to the east to Creed. So that was like five days. And Scott Morris was actually going to come out and meet me for, for a couple of days of riding there, which was awesome. And the day before I met him, uh, or no, the way I was able to convince him to come out was like, hey, Scott, there's a section of Colorado Trail and CDT that I don't think you've ever ridden. And it was one that, you know, you for one of the wilderness bypasses, you come up a pass on a, on a road from the north and then you hop and ride CT or CDT to the west. But there's actually more trail to the east. And it's so circuitous in that area that it wasn't actually that far to come climb back up to that pass from the other direction and then ride the trail the other way and then drop into Creed. So it was mm. basically I did a, a loop or a figure eight kind of thing way out there and got Scott to come out and meet me. And that was like, there's no reason I had to do that. I just really wanted to see what that section of trail was like. And it turned out to be stunning. It was like a few miles of after hike a bike to get up high. It was a few miles of riding on this flat 
Alpine Plateau at like, what were we at? 12,000 feet or something like that. And it was just like this ribbon of single track across the top. Absolutely stunning. Like some of the most mellow tundra riding of anywhere in Colorado that I've seen. And yeah, I had a blast. And so that was one of those scenarios where it's like, I'm feeling good. I have just enough food to be able to ride a little bit extra. Scott brought me a couple burritos, which helped with that. And just this curiosity to know what that bit of trail was like and to be able to incorporate a little bit more official, quote unquote, well, officially official CDT in the ride. That was great. And so that was, you know, that's, I don't know, that was my weird, weird thinking along the way. No, no, it's no, really... no compulsion other than for knowing what it's like on my own. <laughs> yeah. I love that, man. That's such a, uh, it really, I think probably speaks to who you are as a person. Like, who are you as a person when nobody's watching? You know, what line do you take? And, and also, like, mm -hmm. there there isn't a, a history with this route the way there is with, like, the Tour Divide, where, you know, it's like everybody knows about all the different passes, and did you take this line, or did you, you know, it's like, mm -hmm. when, you're, when you're doing the CDT, you're really just like, I know you weren't the first, but you're still an early adopter and there isn't mm -hmm. a, a group of community that's going to say, Oh, he didn't take that trail. He went on, you know, like it's well, completely yeah, self-directed, you know, that's one of the things that also bothers me about the bike packing community in a way is that there is this notion of like, this is the way to do it. If you're riding that route, you got to do this. Like, otherwise it doesn't count. And like I had some guy that I ran into on the trail and a bike packer or mountain biker, but he also bike packs in, uh, where was that? It was in southern Montana. And on that day, I was riding with a few friends that had like would set a shuttle to ride that section of trail. And I threw like my handlebar bag and a bunch of food in their shuttle vehicle so that I didn't have to carry it for the whole day ride. And he was like joking, like, oh, you get an asterisk now because you're not doing it self-supported. It's like, well, what does it matter? Like, you don't you it's not up to you to like consider the way that somebody should be doing a ride. Like you're just out there for yourself. If you're in a race, yeah, there's rules. But if right. you're out there on your own for your own adventure, like make whatever ever decisions you want. It's your ride. Like decide how to have the most fun with it and get the most enjoyment out of it. And like if your goal is to ride 100% of the like Colorado Trail race route as a tour, like cool, that's that's great if you want to do it that way. And if you want to take every shortcut possible to avoid the worst sections of the trail, like if you don't want to ride Sergeant's Mesa and deal with 15 miles of like ridiculously chunky trail fine that's great skip it you'll have more fun yeah. i bet yeah absolutely i couldn't i couldn't agree more um i had a different takeaway my thought was you're creating or um collecting data and stuff for bikepacking routes and uh for the cdt and and helping but uh it, it sounds like a big part of this was just a personal motivation to go and do it and so my thought was like great you know that I would assume makes it more fun. Like you, you're, totally. <laughs> you're making a choice. You're not, you know, I don't have to go over that pass because I'm have to give data to this person. Like it's just self-directed. You're like, eh, I, what else yep. am I going to do today? I want to put my bike on my back, take three trips to get to the top of this mountain and see what's <laughs> on the other side. And that's what I want to do. Exactly. And that's what's yeah. going to make it, me happy. Yeah. And when it did get hard and I started not having fun with what I was doing, I always just reminded myself like, Hey, you chose this. Like you chose to ride the CDT. You chose that knowing how hard it was going to be full well. And then in the shorter term, like three hours ago, you chose to go this way. Like you could have gone around. You knew there was going to be debt, you know, just whatever the, the hard situation was, just reminding myself that I made that decision myself. And 
I got to live with the consequences of it. So might as well make the best of it. Usually yeah. that that helped turn my mind around pretty quickly. Yeah, I think perspective is great. I a lot of times if things get hard, I just it's a mental shift that I do. It's kind of a trick, but I'm like, oh, good. You know, I've I've been riding my bike for 15 hours so that my knees would hurt, so that my ass <laughs> would hurt, so that my you know, it's like I earned this. You know, this is what mm -hmm. I came for. You know, it's like I, you knew that this was going to happen. Like this is why you're here. You know, so yeah. don't run from it. Don't hide from it. Just be here now, you know, like deal yep. with it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, I, yeah, I really, I think that's such a good perspective. Um, and I'm going to echo it just because I think it's super valuable that I think as a community, I think we do really great, but I think we can keep doing better with allowing people to ride their damn bike any way that they see fit. Mm -hmm. And, um, and we don't need to police everybody, you know, uh, I mean, there's these records and these FKTs and there's, there's routes that it's like, okay, we, we need rules. And, but outside of that, we should be celebrating, uh, fun and enjoyment and, uh, and racing can be fun and enjoyable too. But, you know, it's like, yeah, if Kurt wants to get a burrito from Scott and throw his gear in a truck and ride the section without <laughs> gear because he's going to lift his bike over his head a thousand times in the next mile, then great. You know, who, who cares? Like, yep. you know, I don't know. It's like, I don't. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's important. I like that you're saying that, too, is like prioritize fun, prioritize your personal enjoyment for the thing that you're doing. Um, because if we're not keeping the fun and enjoyment at the forefront of riding bikes, then what the fuck are we doing? You know, like we gotta, yep. we gotta keep the fun at the front, I think, you know, so I think that's important. Um, I want to, let's, you, you talked about it earlier about the, what is it? The national scenic trail designation that the CDT mm -hmm. has and other trails as yeah. well. And how, you know, from, I think you said 1978, uh, it was put in there that only equestrians and, and hikers are, this trail is set aside for equestrians, equestrians and hikers. And I think this is a perfect illustration of why cycling advocacy is important. And furthermore, why bikepacking routes has value. Um, and so I thought that this would be a good segue or tie-in to speaking about what bikepacking routes is and, and, and what the goals and objectives of that organization is for people who aren't familiar. Yeah. So, so we're in a 501c3 nonprofit. We were founded when, geez, 2017. So six years ago now, um, Kate Boyle and I were the co-founders and I was the director for the first I don't know what, four, four or five years. And the whole vision for the organization was being a very much community supported uh, effort to support the bikepacking community. And for us, that looked like route development, really high quality routes with really good resources. So people know exactly what they're, they're getting into um, in terms of what the experience is going to be and making sure those are updated and regularly and stewarded. Uh, there's a educational arm on for that, just how, how to help people get more into bikepacking, how, how to get new people into it and how to support the community in bringing in folks that are less represented in the bikepacking community and extend that opportunity as best we can to everyone out there that that's interested in being part of it. And then an advocacy component, uh, which is very much focused on the 
the realities of bike access, kind of long distance bike access. So connectivity, uh, whether or not bikes are allowed on certain trails or not uh, in the backcountry, whether areas that are open to bikes continue to be open to bikes, things like that. Uh, and public lands related advocacy and thinking about things from like a large landscape perspective. Like, well, it's it's not just that that trail or that road remains open to bikes for bikepacking through this area, but that this large landscape is conserved in a way that it also supports the experience that we're looking for. And conversely, trying to use the bikepacking community as, as advocates to protect these these places that we ride. So it goes both both ways. And to to help folks become advocates for those places, you need to get folks out there and help them understand just what's so special about the place, like beyond just the aesthetics of it or how quiet it is or things like that. Uh, but kind of share what's at stake if those sorts of areas aren't protected. So that's something that that we've been been working hard to do and gradually grow our capacity. Like we're still organizationally very small. We've got um, Noelle Battle, who is our, our ED. She's our first full-time ED. Uh, and she's amazing. She lives in uh, Baltimore. Maryland and has been with us for what about six months now and then I'm the the routes director currently and focused mostly on on route development and uh Kate Boyle is involved in the ad or the education side of things and events and we've also got um Jan Bennett who lives in central New Mexico northern New Mexico who's been a longtime volunteer and regional advisor and is working with us on a variety of capacities at this point so that's basically it for for staff. Uh, three of us are very part time. One full time person. We've got. <laughs> I think we're up to close to nine thousand members. So oh, wow, uh, with the organization. So huge, huge level of community support. Uh, wow. We've got a board of directors, which is engaged in a whole variety of ways, very much behind the scenes, which is how it is at most most nonprofits, and they're the mm -hmm. ones that just focus on on making sure that we're continuing to pursue our mission and that we don't get sidetracked on on other things or get too focused on one side and not doing yeah. enough with with something else and so yeah gradually continuing to work on on building that capacity we have and this year we rolled out our uh community routes project yeah. which was some since literally since the day we launched people have been asking how can we submit my like how can i submit a route to bikepacking routes and we just haven't had the capacity up until this year to really put the structure in place to do that in a way that all the routes are carefully vetted. They're from folks that we know and trust uh, that they're putting together a really good route that is and that the experience and how that's conveyed to the riders is going to really make sure people get out there and have a good experience or as good of an experience as possible. And that each route has a steward that is on the ground and making sure that that route is and the resources are up to date every year. Uh, and not just something that gets submitted and then kind of five years later, sections are closed to bikes or things have changed on the ground and nothing gets updated with the resources. So that's what we're trying to really avoid. Um, and got a community stewards program, which is helping support folks that are very dedicated to helping grow our sport. And so these are people all over the country that are just kind of doing their thing already and that we want to be able to support. And so that's a new program that we just launched uh when a few months ago and we're continuing to grow our, our camp outs program which are our on the yeah. ground events that are just very community oriented uh very much non-competitive just built around helping educate and, and bring people together to have positive bikepacking experiences so those are all all things that we've been working with uh uh 
well, that Noel has been basically leading the charge in expanding those and getting those off the ground since we'd been talking about them for years and just never quite <laughs> committed to actually making them happen because we didn't quite have yeah. the capacity. And now, now we do. And, and she's, she's bringing those all into reality. Yeah, I'm excited to have Noel on on board. She and I have uh, had some emails, and uh, we've hopped on one one Zoom chat so far. But um, you know, I'm I'm excited. I don't know if she's uh, copied you in on any of this stuff, but um, Bikes for Death and Bikepacking Roots are gonna uh, work on partnering up a little bit more going into 2024, helping mm-hmm. to promote what you guys are doing and. Um, I'm a big, big fan of, of what y'all are doing. It to, I don't know if fan is the right word, but uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm an appreciative community member who thinks that y'all are providing value and um, routes are great and, 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 and creating diversity in the community is great and, and helping to bring other people in that way. But for me, w- like the key thing is having that, an organization that represents bike packers and, and cyclists. Um, and, and so we have a seat at the table, you know, in these mm-hmm. conversations and, and having that land access, uh, is so critical. And I really appreciate what you said about how in order to advocate for those places and in order to be good stewards of them, we have to get people out there and, uh, experiencing and having these wilderness experiences because it is through those experiences that we're going to get a uh, a personal relationship with wild places and therefore a personal desire and motivation to help protect them and to advocate for them. And um, these are some of the biggest topics I think that we can talk about it as mm-hmm. outdoors people is how do we protect our wild places? How do we be good stewards of them? And how do we make sure that we continue to have access to them? Because there's fucking companies out there that would love to put a pipeline in through, or, you know, there's all kinds mm-hmm. of threats to our access that we need to be, we can't just sit back and, and, and hope that they're just always going to be there. You know, I mean, yep. uh, we, we have a history of, of people fighting for those, uh, the rights and the access to these lands. And so, um, I feel like I'm over hitting this note here, but I do <laughs> think it is very important. Um, and I, I'm wondering now, uh, if, do you have any asks for the community? How can, uh, the community, like I said, Bikes for Death is going to make a greater mm-hmm. effort at going forward to support what Bikepacking Roots is doing um, because I believe in it. I think it's important. What What's the ask, if anything, from the community uh, right now? How can they help support Bikepacking Roots? Yeah, well, I think there's there's probably in this conversation two things that I would say. One is become a member. Um and support us and you know you can donate a dollar you can donate a hundred dollars like whatever you want any any amount helps uh but that is crucial as a community supported organization like we we need financial support from members and especially to grow our advocacy program which is one of our goals uh is to to expand that so that we can be more engaged and more involved in more places in those advocacy issues and then two pay attention to our communications and if you're a member you get our newsletter um, but follow us on Instagram and pay attention to what we're talking about, because when it comes to advocacy, so much of our asks for the community are simply, can you comment on this issue as it's 
happening. And that's how land management decisions in part are made is by listening to what the community says during the public comment process. And we don't put out too many asks. We try to keep them very targeted um, for important ones where we really want people to engage. And those are times when your voice is going to be important. And so um, I think and one that that we're working on, and it's been really great to see in the last, uh, I guess, year and a half, two years, uh, we've started working much more closely with uh, a couple other advocacy organizations, International Mountain Bike Association, IMBA, um, and Adventure Cycling Association, ACA, and People for Bikes, also in a few different areas that working together as basically the organizations representing the the, the cycling community in, in these spaces, uh, together we can have a much more prominent voice. And if we can work together to actually come up with strategies for the best way to respond to certain things, that makes it all that much more powerful. And so there was, we I think we had one, one ask for the community, it's probably about a year ago for the Bolt Act, which is the, the Biking on Long Distance Trails Act, which has been slowly making its way through committee and through Congress that would direct land managers to identify and work toward either finishing or uh, starting a number of, well, I think it's a total of 20 long distance bike trails on public lands. And this is huge. Like there's never been a directive working its way through Congress like that. It's quite non-controversial, but still taking its time to get through Congress as things do. And with our, our ask, I think it was us and ACA had a campaign to generate letters of support. And I think we had like 7,000 letters of support that came out of that. So that was, that was phenomenal. Yeah. That's the kind of, kind of support we need in those sorts of things, um, to, to make those happen. And also, when it was, it was just like, um, maybe six weeks ago, Noel, uh, was in Washington along with folks from a few of those other organizations. Um, Gabe Tiller, one of our, our former board members, and he's at the helm of the Orogenesis project, the, the big single track route down the West coast and uh, a few other, uh, cycling advocates were all in Washington specifically to meet with folks about those projects, those potential trails, bolt act, and just generate more support with, uh, with the representatives in Congress. So those are really important things. It's not the sexiest work to be doing. It's, you know, it's not the most fun work to be doing, but it can make a huge difference for the community as a whole. And so those yeah. sorts of things, if, if we put out an ask for folks to comment on things, that means that it's one that we think is actually critically important to get, yeah. get folks engaged with. So yeah, follow along. And, and when those times come up, um, yeah, a simple, it can take, I would say on average, probably will take take you five minutes to do something like that, to write a very short letter of support. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Uh, that's a great sales pitch. I'm sold. I'm advocated. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm mobilized. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, no, but yeah, that, is, that's, that it is maybe not the most sexy thing to talk about, but I know we talked about it on the first episode and I'll probably talk about it every single time that you and I talk because I, <laughs> I, I recognize and I believe that it is vitally important. Um, we have to have a seat at the table and we need groups uh, like yours and ACA and People for Bikes and everything who are advocating for us. Um, so appreciate the work that you guys do over there. It's, um, it's critical. And the one thing I've noticed about this community is it, it seems like this is a very engaged engaged community and, 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 and mobilized community, uh, where, um, 
I mean, to have 9,000 members and get 7,000 uh, little letters written, I mean, that mm -hmm. sounds pretty good. And I do think yeah. that this community is somewhat in tune to the fact that we're still in its infancy, you know, especially like the bikepacking side is what I'm referring to, not cycling, yep. but um, yep. the bikepacking side of it is still in its infancy. And it, it, it it's a community effort to keep this thing going, you know? I mean, it's... Yep. Uh, but it, but it's, when we're when we're now we being bikepacking roots when we're getting invited to have a seat at the table in cases that's a sign that things are moving in a really positive direction that bikepackers yeah. are being recognized by other organizations and by land managers in some cases as being a legitimate user group that needs to have a voice or whose voice needs to be considered that's fantastic like that's the direction that we want to be heading in and that's what's happening yeah. so yeah you want to get invited to those black tie dinners and have cocktail parties <laughs> <laughs> on Washington. Oh my gosh. That premonition is going to come true. Just wait, just wait. You're going to be out yeah, one day. I'm not going to argue with that. <laughs> you are correct. All right. So let's, uh, let's maybe sell some training plans real quick. I'm going to use this as a selfish <laughs> opportunity, uh, but we can both benefit here, Kurt. Um, are you, where are you at right now? Are you open to taking on more athletes? Cause you, if, uh, let's let's make this clear. I think you do two things. One, I think you sell training plans, and two, you do individual one-on-one -on -one coaching. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. That is correct. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm not okay. taking on any additional athletes right now. My roster is packed for the well, like the next five months or so, with with folks that have kind of winter and spring goals that they're working toward. Yeah. Uh, but the alternative that I have is a number. I have two different. Uh, kind of bikepacking race specific training plans. One is a four month long plan. One's a six month long plan. And they're basically just designed for quote unquote short bikepacking races and long bikepacking races. Mm. So whether or not you're looking at a, you know, two to four day race versus a something that's like six or seven plus days. Um, and I've had plenty of folks train for tour divide on the four month plan and people use the six month plan for like the Arizona Trail 300 where they finish in three days. So it's not cut and dry, which which one's right for you. And so, yep, so I've got those and those have been incredibly popular. They come with a, it's like a 60 page kind of preparation guide that runs through all different kinds of considerations that aren't necessarily race specific considerations, things like sports nutrition and fueling, things like um, mental preparation strategies for doing hard things. And so I've had actually quite a few people that have bought the plans just to get the guidebook for getting ready for big bikepacking trips mm -hmm. and learn more about what they can do, not to train, but to just kind of get ready for 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 hard things like that. Yeah. So I'm uh I'm taking on and I'm I'm doing ITT of the AZT three hundred in um in April of next year. Oh, so I was actually doing the math math yesterday and I was like, uh -huh. I was talking to my six-year-old daughter. We were on a bike ride <laughs> and she was asking me questions. We were actually podcasting. I was practicing. I got a new microphone. So we were practicing and then she started oh, nice. asking me questions and she was like, <laughs> She was like, when are you, when are you doing that hard ride? And I was like, D -d 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 -d. I was like, oh shit, that's six months away. I need to like yeah. start training. Like this is the time. Uh, so I was going to try to hire you, but you're not taking on new athletes. So, uh, is your, <laughs> do you think I should, uh, pick up which, which packet do you think I should pick up? I would push you to the four month one. I think, okay. I think for most folks, four months of fairly dedicated training is 
ideal. I think more than that is a long time to sustain to be focused on training and following structure for a lot of folks. And it gets hard to like keep having fun with it since, I mean, the reality is for most of most of us endurance riders, the reason we ride our bike is because we love riding our bikes. It's not necessarily because we love training to ride our bikes. And so yeah. there's that fun component that is critical to factor in. And I'd, I'd rather see people spend a couple months doing like base train, quote unquote, base training that isn't actually structured, just riding your bike a bunch and having fun and then start following that four month plan for four months or even just for three months to get get ready for for one of those events. So I really only push people that are racing something like Tour Divide or that scale for the six month plan. Okay. Now for someone like me, I run my own business. Uh, I'm single dad with two daughters. I'm busy on top of busy, oh, yeah. I feel like, you know, um, and my life is always chaotic. How, and I'm asking <laughs> this personally, but I'm hoping other people can benefit too from this information. Like how, how well does your four month program uh, how adaptable is it for someone like me, you know, who isn't a full-time mm -hmm. racer and, you know, I've got a job and kids and all that, you know, like how, yeah. how well it's, will it work for somebody like you're me? You're the kind of person it's designed for. Like I don't write okay. plans for pro athletes that okay. have all the yeah. time in the world in theory to train, which actually isn't the case, but, um, right. But in theory, yeah. yeah. And, and the so outside also, perspective is like, Oh, all they do is ride their bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That is, I, it's very understandable, but that's so far from reality. Exactly. Um, but yeah. yeah, so the plan, each of those uh, training plans actually has two plans within it, like two levels. There's a lower volume and a higher level plan within the plan, training plan. So you get both of them and, and they're all laid out kind of so you can see like what is the higher volume plan and more demanding plan do this week? What's the other one do this week? And you can almost like pick and choose. Some people follow. I've had people follow the, the, low, the lower level for one race and then the higher level one for the next race that they do. Okay. Um, I've had people pick and choose, like just kind of use it as a, a recipe book to choose workouts or like, oh, this one, I'm this, I'm a little tired right now. What would the lower volume one ask me to do? Um, so you can kind of, and they don't, it's not like days translate directly from one to the other, but you can get a really good idea looking at it, like, oh, what's, what's the more demanding approach? What's the less demanding approach? Yeah. Um, and the reality also is, you know, if somebody is training for something and they follow, say, 70% of that plan and don't have time to complete like 30% of the rides, that's great. Like that's going to help you out so much more than not following a plan at all. And so some some folks get really caught up in like, what if I miss a workout? And I hate that term because it's, you know, everything you're doing is fantastic if you're actually following a structured plan. Um fantastic compared to just going out and riding your bike every day and not thinking about it. So do the best you can with it and you will see considerable gains no matter what you do to a point. If you do too much, you actually will hurt yourself and that won't, yeah. won't be beneficial. Um, and if you try to cram too much into life, I mean, when you think about overtraining, overtraining is stressing your body too much, like to be beyond what it can, what it is ready for or what can, it can adapt to. And that can be training stress, but it can be any kind of life stress, whether it's like work stress or relationship stress or not sleeping enough stress, like all of those add to that. And so just packing more training into an already busy life can increase stress fairly dramatically. Yeah. And so that's something you want to avoid and, and really be cognizant of that yeah. you can you can get overtrained on relatively low training volume if the rest of your life is high stress. Um, so that's, that's something to keep in mind with not trying to do too much and pack too much in. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Yeah. There's a, there's opportunity cost for everything. A long training ride might take you away from your kids or, you know, if you're in a relationship away from the person you're in a relationship with, it could cause strain. It's like, Hey, I Mm -hmm. never see you anymore. I mean, there's all (laughs) kinds of, you know, factors, you know, where you're trying to balance it. And it's not just riding bikes, man. It's, it's figuring out how to make money and keep your relationships and and stay healthy and mentally well. And, and also do all these. If you're healthy, mentally in a good place and having fun with the training and show up to an ultra like that, that's fantastic. If you, if any one of those things is starting to struggle or you're starting to struggle with any one of those things and you show up to a race, you're likely to not perform as well and not enjoy it as much as if you had trained less and in an effort to make sure, make sure you're having fun, make sure that the balance in life was healthy, all of that. So I'm very much an advocate for, you know, make sure you're having fun with it. Don't like as soon as things stop being fun, step back and really think about like, okay, what can I change to start having fun with this again? Because that needs to be the goal. And you're going to race so much better if you're really happy and having fun with it. Um, It doesn't matter. Like if you're if you're as fit as you possibly can be, if you're the fittest person doing these races. But if you show up kind of drained from that mentally, then you're probably not going to have a great ride. And yeah. There, I mean, there are literally people who have shown up for Tour Divide and not started the race because they realized how burned out they were from the training to get wow. to the race and yeah. feel like they were ready for it. So like that's yeah. that's the end member case of what could potentially happen. But yeah, have fun with it. Prioritize that. Yeah, great, great advice. Uh, you know, just anecdotally from doing this podcast for five years, when I'm interviewing people that are winning races or doing very well, they're, they're happy. You know, you, Mm -hmm. I rarely talk to somebody who's like, Oh, I had a terrible time. I mean, they're, (laughs) they're, they're like having fun. They're, they found a way to really be happy in those hard moments and, and find joy. And, um, I, I have found that it's, it's, I don't know to what degree, I don't know how to put a percentage on it, but your mental well-being has a huge impact on your ability to perform well and endure things for a long time. If you're not mentally yep. well, you're going to crack so much faster and easier. And so, again, let's prioritize fun. It all, you know, it really <laughs> does come back to being, you know, having a good time and being happy and being enjoyable. Those miles are going to be a little bit easier with a smile on your face. You know, they they most definitely are. Yeah. I've never followed a training plan, man. I've never, ever, ever followed a training plan. Um, but I've had, like, I just tried a four, my, it was my own route in central Texas, a 475 mile mm-hmm. route. And I only made it 200 miles before I, I had to DNF. Uh, well, I've already enumerated that for my listeners, so I won't bore you with the details, <laughs> but, but you know, I'm like, I'm like, I, I, I've been, Actually, I would looked at. I saw my notes from our first interview, so I like reviewed my notes, and I don't. I don't think it came up on the episode. I don't think. Uh, but in 2019, I had on my notes to ask you, give me some tips for the AZT 300. Like the AZT uh-huh. 300 has been a bucket list for me for five years now, and it's a date on the calendar is happening this year, and I want to be successful and I want to have fun. Like I want to go out there and enjoy the experience, you know? And so yep. I want I'm going to train, man. I'm going to buy your, yeah. I'm going to buy it. And, uh, what we should do is maybe do another episode next year and, 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 uh, 
I can tell you how my EZT went and yeah. we can talk about your training plan a little bit more in depth because that's another reason I want to do it. It's like, okay, well, I've had all these experiences of just like going and riding my bike a lot and training in the gym and trying to be healthy, but not with really any like direction. Yeah. So yep. now I want the experience of, okay, I'm going to follow a plan as close as I can and then, and, and see what the difference is. You know, I'm curious. Yeah. Oh, I'm really excited to hear what that, how that, how that feels me too um but yeah the azt 300 is phenomenal i've raced i think i've raced that like nine times it's kind of the local local route it was a really fun one to do all sorts of experiments on and just try this try that uh, especially once it became super familiar uh so that one's near and dear to my heart and april is the ideal time to race that one so that's, that's why itt is awesome you get to pick your month <laughs> yep exactly and you can hopefully hopefully have the flexibility to pick a good weather window because in april it can be i mean there twice i raced over mount lemon literally in blizzards in that race which was not what i had bargained for and then we've also had 100 plus degrees in it in yep. other years and one of those years i think had 90 some degrees and a blizzard which was a harsh <laughs> harsh combination to deal with now that sounds um, like the arizona trail yeah that's i mean that's I mean, and tour divide, I mean, the, the weather windows and the, the fluctuation and the weather that yep. you're going to hit is just it, wi widely ranging, which is part of the adventure, man. You just, yep. uh, so to answer your question, no, I have, we have a date. It's April 11th. Um, okay. we're actually inviting, it's going to be a, a group start, like an unofficial group oh, start. Cool. I'm just yeah, inviting yeah. people. You can go do your ITT at the same time if you want to, it's not organized, but you know, yeah. if you want to show up, we can ride it together. Um, yeah, so it's in that way, it's going to be very much a. I mean, I'm picking the right month, um, but I'm going to be subject to if it's hot, it's hot. Yep. If it's cold, it's cold. And I'm just, I'm going to have to go ride it no matter what. So yep. it's going to be what it's going to be. Uh, but I'm really excited to finally get out there. And uh, yeah, I'll follow up with you and tell you how it goes. Yeah, please do. All right. Let's, uh, this has been fun, man. I've enjoyed chatting with you. Uh, it's always yeah. a pleasure. Let's not. Let's not wait another four years. No, and I think it sounds like April of next year. That'll be the next yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, sounds so, good. That's, that's not uh, that far away. I wanted I wanted to direct people to the Radivis to if they want to oh, get yeah. more granular with your CDT experience. You released uh, was it a four part uh, written with photos yeah. and stuff on the Radivis? Yeah, so I, I did a series for them. There's uh, one that was kind of like a pre trip um, article. It was kind of background to to the CDT and to biking on it, uh, and then three three from during the the trip and the last of those, the kind of Colorado New Mexico article just popped up there on Friday. So there's links. I think that last one has links to the prior ones. Each one is a photo gallery of like 25 or 30 photos to just really kind of help help show people because you can talk about it, but you can't, yeah. you can't put it into, I can't put it into words, uh, just how amazing it is and just how diverse it is out there. So the photos tell more of that story. And then there'll be a couple upcoming uh, pieces that are well, I got kind of so many questions while I was out there about various out like considerations for the gear, how things were working, or why did you bring a tarp and not a tent? Hikers were blown away that I did not have a tent. They every hiker had a tent, um, and a lot of questions from folks about food and like how did I carry food for five plus days yeah. in between resupplies, especially on a like full suspension setup without big bags. So a lot of questions about that. So I'm going to do two like Q and A articles 
uh, oh, sweet. that are one's focused kind of on gear and bike setup and all that. And then the other one is mostly focused on food and food planning. Now it'll tie in a little bit of stuff from the Iditarod trail earlier this, earlier this year when I had to carry like a week's worth of food. And I mean, on that one, you're carrying like 7,000 calories a day almost. So, so much food, so many considerations when it goes into the the fuel side of things. Uh, so if you do not have as questions, much as the 14,000 you carried on the Colorado trail race, I remember that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 14,000, I believe was the number like that you had to carry. And that's just for like a day and a half or something. Yeah. Yeah. It was yep. gnarly, man. And I remember it was, you, you averaged 350 calories per hour. That's what your body can tolerate. At least it did yep. at that time. <laughs> yep. Yep. That's for racing. That's my goal for, for touring. It's a little bit less than that. Um, yeah. but yeah, all sorts of factors. So if you, if you do have any questions, um, I haven't written those articles yet. And the way I was soliciting questions was, well, either you can leave a comment on that last Radivest article with a question in there or on my Instagram, the last couple posts are Q&A type, just like, give me a question. I'll answer it in the article if I don't answer it here. So yeah, if you do perfect. Yeah, that'll be awesome. That, yeah. People need to go check out that Radivest article and send you questions if they have them. I had a, I was, this is professional curiosity. Uh, what <laughs> camera, what camera were you using? Because the oh, photos were question. actually... That's Amazing. a question I've gotten a lot. Um, thank you. Thank you. Um, it's a Sony Alpha 6300. So uh, uh, kind of medium size camera body and then a fairly hefty uh, Tamron. What is it? A 28 to 200. Oh, I have this 28 to 200 too. Yeah. I have an which, A7 III. So uh, I'm okay, still in the bigger. Sony family. Yeah. But yep. I'm looking, I think I'm going to do a, like a, oh fuck. What is it called? I can't remember the A7 or something. It's a smaller mirrorless one. I can't remember, but I think I'm looking for something mm. more compact. I was like, I bet Kurt has a more compact one. But. This, I mean, I've I've just gradually graduated from the 6000 to the 61 to the 63 as I've broken camera bodies over the years. And each time just get, I can't quite commit to anything too much bigger. And the 6300 has, I mean, I've been carrying it on most of my trips for like four years now and i'm shocked that it still works like it's yeah. so worn abraded around the edges and everything i go through lenses but that that body has been impressively resilient and the tamron lens is a fantastic like i debated do i just bring one do i bring two lenses and i was like i can't bring more than one yeah and every time on the trail if i ran into hikers I was like hey can i take a picture of you and i pull out my camera and they're all like whoa you brought a real camera and because they, I mean, none of them had cameras. They just all had, all had their phones and I didn't actually weigh the camera until I finished the ride, but the camera and lens are two pounds. So it is a hefty, hefty thing to Little carry beefy. for the whole time, but I'm really glad, really yeah, glad that it's I, worth it. I, yeah, I think so. I really value the photos from trips for me personally, like reliving them and stuff. And so like, it's a weight penalty that I'm, I'm happy to, to take. I won't exactly. take it on the AZT, you know, it depends no, on what racing. I'm doing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not, not, and I'm not, even, I don't even know if I'm racing, but I'm just, you know, that's going to be me against the trail. That's not for creating, uh, you know, photos. Yeah. I got my iPhone, but, um, you yeah. know, yeah, I, I, when I can, I definitely like to take photos. Cool, man. Well, I'll let you get back uh, to the rest of your day. I don't know what you got going on, but I bet it's a lot more exciting than talking I, on the internet. I don't even, I don't even know what I'm going to do for the rest of the day. So I'm in one of those like so busy during the week that on the weekends I'm like, wow, I haven't even had time to think about the weekend yet. I'll I go ride that my life. Bike. So I think yeah. I'll go ride my bike, <laughs> dude. I, that's my life. Is like I don't I'll, like I'll just find myself in a moment of not needing to do it. I'm like, oh, I kind of have downtime. Hmm. What am I going to do? I'll go ride my bike. That's usually the answer. But yeah, I mean, it's yep. like, I don't have time to think ahead. It's like, I don't know 
We'll let the future yep. worry about itself. Yeah. Good that's chats, man. Right now. I enjoyed Likewise. it. Thanks for coming Thank on, man. We'll talk to you again uh, sooner rather than later. Yep. All right. Have a great one. All right. Take care, buddy. Bye-bye. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode. I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. It was a pleasure to have Kurt back on the podcast and it's great to have him as a member of Team Bicycle. Now, uh, I'm gonna make this short and sweet because the same kiddo that made an introduction in today's episode is in the next room and she's got a tummy bug, so I gotta go take care of her. But uh, next week, next week's episode is TBD. Um, we have a couple potentials, so I don't know exactly which one's gonna... <laughs> which one's going to be first, but we got a couple good ones coming up next. Um, oh, well, actually, while we're here, let me go ahead and announce one of the possible next episodes. Next week, November 15th, Hannah Simon and I are going to be recording our final installment of Hannah Simon taking on the Triple Crown this year. Spoiler alert, she completed it. All three races, Tour Divide, Colorado Trail, Arizona trail race, complete rookie to all those events. Well done, Hannah. We are, I mean, absolutely blown away with, uh, your accomplishment. So we're going to be chatting next Wednesday, November 15th at 6 30 PM. We're going to be at cycle East in Austin. We're going to have a live audience. You can come, you can watch and listen to the podcast. And then of course, we're going to have a question and answer session right afterwards. So Please, if you're in the Austin area or if you want to make a flight, you want to be at a live event and hear the finale of Hannah Simon's Triple Crown, you don't want to miss it. And if you do miss it, I'll release it as an episode on the podcast so you won't completely miss out. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. It's been an absolute pleasure. Until next week, you know what to do. Go ride your damn bike.